Welcome to What Does Eugenics Mean to Us, a podcast from the UCL Sarah Parker Raymond Center. I'm your host, Subhadra Das, and for the last 10 years, I've been researching the history and legacy of eugenics at UCL in the sciences and beyond. In this podcast, I've brought together some brilliant researchers for some fascinating and insightful conversations across the disciplinary divides. Together, we are going to discuss, examine, critique, and explode eugenic thinking. How are racism, ableism, sexism, and class warfare embedded in our ways of thinking about and perceiving other people? What can we do to challenge and dismantle those ideas and structures? As a university and a community of researchers, what does eugenics mean to us? This episode documents and commemorates a collaborative research project at UCL, which brought together geneticists, historians, archaeologists and museum curators to consider how science mediates the dilemma of death. The project was called Curating Heads, and its scientific aims were to use the latest techniques in ancient DNA analysis to sequence the genomes of two historic figures at UCL, the philosopher Jeremy Bentham and the archaeologist William Matthew Flinders Petrie. Joining me to talk about the project are Alice Stevenson, who was curator of the Petrie Museum of Egyptian Archaeology during the run of this project. She is now Associate Professor in Museum Studies at UCL's Institute of Archaeology, and also the co-founder of a brilliant decolonial museum project called 100 Histories of 100 Worlds in One Object. Debbie Chalice, a historian and classicist by training who was Audience Development Officer at the Petrie Museum, where her research, public programmes and exhibitions are seminal milestones in the history of critical eugenics at UCL. She is now Education and Outreach Officer at the London School of Economics Library. Mark Thomas is Professor of Evolutionary Genetics in the Research Department of UCL Genetics, Evolution and Environment. He is also UCL's ancient DNA researcher to the stars, having worked on ADNA projects on Richard III and Charles Byrne, who was known as the Irish Giant. Finally, Tim Causer is Research Fellow at the Bentham Project based at UCL Laws, and as such, one of UCL's go-to Bentham experts. Together with Professor Philip Schofield, Tim is an editor of Panopticon vs. New South Wales and Other Writings on Australia, a forthcoming collection of the works of Jeremy Bentham. And we are gathered here today to commemorate and to reminisce a project that was a UCL Grand Challenges funded project called Curating Heads. And you were all variously thinking about heads at UCL from a scientific and a museological point of view. Tell me about how you all got together and, and how this project got started. I think the credit has to go to you, Debbie. I think you were one of the founders of it. Well, actually, I think it was because I met Mark and he was telling me about how he thought he might be able to get some ADNA from Jeremy Bentham's nose. I think that's right, isn't it, Mark? From his bits, I think. <laughs> yeah. From his bits, yes. So, Mark, what, what was it so particularly about Bentham's head that appealed to well, you? Well, I mean, my memory is all a bit hazy. I've been at UCL for well, a long time, more than 20 years. And um, so, you know, he's always loomed large. And being, the, I, I suppose, the main person at UCL for, for quite some time who did ancient DNA, the assumption was that I would probably do it one day. And I think I was asked actually about it about 15 years ago and said then wouldn't be the time because I felt the technologies weren't 
good enough to justify destructive sampling. But those technologies changed. And I, I do remember having conversations with Debbie and Alice about this, but the, the technologies had improved. And so it would be worth a try with Bentham. But I think I think one of the difficult things about ancient DNA of not so ancient individuals, you know, of individuals for whom there is some still family and so on, is the ethics of, of sampling them. And with Bentham, it just struck me as that's an easy one. I, I, I think you'd be hard pushed to find anybody who would deny that it's what he would have wanted. So in that sense, it struck me that this would be a great project. Tim, it was interesting, Mark's wording there. Can you think of anybody for whom this would be an easy option in the same way that it would be for him? No, no, precisely, yeah. You're quite right. He uh, left his body to science to be dissected and then reassembled. So this is just a, a furtherance of that object, I think. Because this was his idea, was the fact that, you know, a, a human bodies are there in, in terms of his idea for utility. The human body is part of that as well. Indeed, yes. He wasn't shy about demonstrating that with his own remains. Oh, yes. So here, here was a good example. Mark, the technology had come to a place where, where it was useful. And then it turned out that there was more than one head, if you forget this image, floating around the university. Alice, Debbie, do you want to fill us in a bit on Flinders Petrie, for whom the Petrie Museum is named, the, the father of modern archaeology, a famous Egyptian archaeologist? First of all, he wanted his head preserved, definitely. But there's a very interesting context in, in terms of how he wanted that to happen. And, ha and also then how it came about and the mystery that then ensues. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I want to step back a bit, actually, because I think part of why we got to Petrie's head as well as Bentham's is because Alice and I were talking a lot about heads, like you do. Yeah, over um, a cup of tea, <laughs> Yes, well, we did, actually, I think. Yeah, we were talking a lot about heads and actually how the Petrie Museum is quite odd for a museum of Egyptian archaeology that didn't have a whole mummy. It had bits of body parts or human remains, if you like. I prefer to call them bodies, as I think Alice does too. So we were kind of wondering why we have these heads, you know, and the skull and various things. It seemed like this obsession with heads. And we were kind of looking at that and looking at, you know, how revolutionary, literally, that Bentham leaving his head and his body to science was and thinking about the revolutionary context of that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we have at the, you know, at the Petrie Museum, we have these collections of not just skulls, but there's also his racial typology of heads and the volume Roman portraits, lots and lots of heads, as Debbie says. But Flinders Petrie's actual head, or what is presumed to be his head, is held by the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons in London. And he died during the Second World War in Palestine, I should add. So he'd left working in Egypt in the 1920s, and he'd spent the rest of his career working in Palestine, where he died during the Second World War. When his head eventually made it back to Britain, after all of the, the chaos of war, it sort of entered a collection that had suffered incredible damage through the, the Blitz. There was the collection that he wanted his, and it, we, we believe it's his skull rather than his head, just to go into the gory details. It is a head that is still indeed covered in flesh. It was never defleshed, and this was one of the other issues that we had to deal with. His head in a jar has sat in the Royal College of Surgeons, but without being grounded within any other part of the collection because all of these other skulls from Egypt and other parts of the world have been decimated and blown up. So now there was just a head in a jar that had no other relevant collection around it. Documentation sort of got separated. Members of staff of, you know, there was a turnover of staff at the Royal College of Surgeons over the years. And so doubts had started to creep in that this head in a jar was in fact Petrie's. There was quite a lot of uncertainty. 
I'd like to tease out a little bit more in terms of motivations. We know that Bentham left his body to science. Petrie was leaving his, well, was also leaving his body to science, but there was a very particular kind of science that he was, was interested in. There was a frame to that. Can you tell us a bit more about that? This is something that I think Mark and I talked about at the beginning of this project, about you know this relationship between eugenics and genetics. And it's a historic one, but of course not really a scientific one. And that Petrie... I mean, basically, he was a racist, he was a racial theorist, and he applied these ideas to himself, actually, to be to be fair to him. I'll give him due credit there. And he thought that, you know, his head was a fine specimen of an Anglo-Saxon type, which is how he described himself. So, you know, he was trying to prove that, essentially, he was the kind of type you should aspire towards being through breeding and through inheritance but it's never straightforward these ideas are never straightforward as we know because he also believed in intermixing of different races as long as they were the right races so you know he was a what you might call a philo-semite in the 30s in Palestine as Alice says and one of the last things I'm aware of that he wrote was a letter to the Jerusalem Post about the Nazis basically in Germany making loads of mistakes with basic Kristallnacht and the Jews because the, the Jews are some of the finest racial types you could ever meet and hope to mate with, essentially. So he's not necessarily going down the path that we think when you tend to think of eugenics and you might think of Galton and you tend to think of the Nazis. Actually, you know, Petrie was a eugenicist, for sure, but he didn't necessarily follow the sort of right-wing, if you like, political path that you might assume that he did. Obviously, there's this thing that genetics essentially proves that we're all human, and that's why the exhibition, in the end came to be about being human there isn't a genetic difference between races that genetics kind of disproves the, the racist origins that it basically was formed in if you like so it's kind of almost done the opposite of what Carl Pearson and Francis Golson wanted Mark do you want to speak to that a little bit more because I think it's it we're all for the complexity we're all for the nuance here so it's a it's about acknowledging there is a commonality in the history between eugenics and genetics but they are by no means the same thing well, yeah. I mean, I, I think you have, we have to separate eugenics from racial theories and scientific racism, both of which are obviously very real and both of which have collided with each other, but we can see them as quite distinct. The ideas of eugenics are clearly people who are early influencers in the development of genetics around the turn of the century. Some of those are eugenicists, although I would note that of the three most important ones, only one of the three, Fisher, was clear-cut eugenicist. The other two main ones, Haldane and Wright, weren't. But they're clearly in the same domain. And the reason is that eugenics is based entirely on the principle of selective breeding or selective reproduction, control of reproduction, by favouring preferred people to in terms of reproduction or by, as you might call it, call it negative eugenics, by stopping, preventing people who are disfavoured reproducing. Now, clearly that's in the domain of genetics because selective breeding is in the domain of genetics. And so it's, it's not really surprising that a lot of the early eugenicists who tried to provide an academic foundation were working in the domain of genetics. Having said that, most people who were members of the eugenics society in Britain were not and had very little to do and, and quite clearly very little understanding even of genetics at the time. It's also definitely true that genetics turned its back on eugenics ideas quite quickly. We didn't actually have to wait until 
the end of the Second World War for that to happen. So in UCL, various geneticists were were recognising that this was problematic before that. But of course, as with most of the rest of the world, people woke up to the particular horrors of eugenics after the Second World War, when, of course, we were informed about the Nazis, Nazi atrocities. But there have been plenty of eugenics atrocities going on after the Second World War all over the world, including in the United States. And again, mostly since the 1930s and 40s, but particularly since the 1950s, with things like the UN Statement on Race, that genetics has been at the forefront of discrediting the concept of race as a biologically meaningful category. But undoubtedly, in the early part of the 20th century, there were geneticists who also fundamentally believed in racial superiority and inferiority. I think almost entirely coming from just embedded views within those societies at the time. And what we were beginning to understand about genetics was then co-opted in the service of those prejudices. Let's move on to the the project itself in terms of what the scientific bit of the project was. So what did that involve? And I think there's still some work outstanding as far as that's concerned. Is that right? So there was a lot of groundwork done in this in this project, but we didn't actually get a great deal of DNA out. We got some, but not a great deal. Actually, the DNA that we got out that was more interesting was DNA from bacteria from his teeth, which was still, you know, gives very interesting results. And also with Petrie, we really had to do the groundwork primarily on identifying, getting a DNA sample and getting permission from his relative so that any sampling of Petrie's remains or uh, purported Petrie's remains could be done. So we didn't actually do any sampling on him yet because we needed to put all the other things in place. So that's where we got with the project. I think we all tried to set it up in such a way that it could be taken to the next stage at another time when funding is made available. I think the most surreal thing for me, actually, my last day of working at UCL was introducing a relative of Petrie to Mark to get the DNA sample. <laughs> so, and I was like, yeah, I've been here just over 10 years and this is my last day, you know, and it, it kind of seemed to sum it up, really, in some ways. <laughs> We're not, we're not going to read too much into the metaphor of that, I think. So that's really interesting in terms of doing the scientific analysis didn't necessarily produce the reams of genome that we were hoping uh, would turn up and that we'd know everything there was to know about Bentham and his genome. But nonetheless, you all seem to manage to make a tremendous amount of work out of this, which was that it was turned into an exhibition that was called What Does It Mean to Be Human?, which was on display in UCL's Octagon Gallery in 2017. Well, we realised we needed to to actually do anything meaningful public engagement-wise. We needed more money or some more kind of funding or something, basically, to really do that public engagement aspect. I rather dumped Alice with the project because I got pregnant and uh, basically went off on maternity leave, having kind of said, yeah, this is what we should do. And I kind of like did an abstract, got Tim's involvement, got your involvement, Sabaja, I'm going to admit that you are, do exist. And Mark's involvement and his team. I mean, it, was, it wasn't just Mark, obviously, because it's, it's a lot of work. So there was this very interesting 
possibility of having this direct confrontation with these two individuals through their remains but we wanted to try and situate that within the history of their own scholarship that led them to leave their bodies to science and we thought this would be an interesting proposition particularly in the context of the challenges of displaying human remains. At the time this also coincided with UCL culture had been awarded an HTA human tissue authority license to display human remains that are less than 100 years old course you know in the kind of broader scheme of things there's been uh, a lot of reluctance to display human remains rightly in very in a lot of contexts where indigenous first nations aboriginal campaigners have been advocating for the return of their ancestors but it's led to an awful lot of sensitivity but there are you know the diversity of human engagements with bodies can't be reduced to a single way of dealing with them and so here we had two individuals who had deliberately left their bodies to science, both deliberately, as far as we understand their scholarship, wanted to be displayed. So there was an interesting proposition. And then we have two very different approaches to what you do with those bodies, the meaning of those bodies in collections, Petrie and his eugenics past and Bentham and his, you know, his advocacy about using bodies in science and other philosophical and political agendas. There was lots we could bring in. And we had four cases of very small (laughs) space and a lot of ideas for working with this. In, in, in those terms, Tim, Bentham really comes to the fore here, not, not only in terms of leaving his body to science, but also in terms of framing a lot of the philosophical aspects and a lot of the actual policy around how human bodies are treated, well, in, in UK society, certainly. Alice mentioned the Human Tissue Authority licence that affected how things can be displayed at UCL. Bentham was influential in an earlier iteration of that, which is the 1832 Anatomy Act. Yeah, I know. Bentham thought about leaving his remains to be dissected by scientists since he was 21, so going back to 1769 here in his, in his first will he left it to a chemist called George Fordyce who incidentally, a couple of decades later Fordyce's daughter married Bentham's younger brother Samuel which is a nice coincidence and he refreshed his will several times but it's only in 1824 when he wrote wrote a codicil to an already existing will when he talks about the dissection, the preservation of his head and the reassembly of his body, but he doesn't use the word auto-icon, self-image. That comes in his last will and testament, where in addition to his will, he writes a pamphlet called Auto-Icon, or Father Uses of the Dead to the Living, which is a play on Thomas Southwood Smith's article of several years earlier called The Uses of the Dead to the Living, and Southwood Smith was campaigning at that time, he was a surgeon himself, for greater access to human bodies, for surgeons to actually understand how the body worked. And he was a utilitarian. He was a disciple of Bentham's, um, a great friend. And Bentham took up the cudgels of this fight. In 1826, Bentham approached the the then Home Secretary, Robert Peel, to present him with this draft of what he called a body-providing bill. So this was to... um, ensure a sort of regular supply of bodies to surgeons so they didn't have to rely on resurrectionists. And in its most basic essence, it meant that if a person entered a hospital, it was on the understanding that if they died, their body could be requisitioned for dissection, with various caveats, depending upon family permission and and, and so forth. But Bentham walked the walk, so to speak. As Southwood Smith said in his oration over Bentham's body a few days after his death at the Webb Street School of Anatomy, he said, essentially said that Bentham was unwilling to 
propose something that he wouldn't have done to himself. And here we have a sort of the dissection of Bentham's body in front of an audience of his friends and so on. It's sort of a practical manifestation of his philosophy that you, he's doing this to promote the greatest happiness. And he says specifically in his will that he's attempted to contribute to human happiness during his life and he hopes to continue to do so after his death. Yeah, so he died just around the time of the passage of the Anatomy Act. Strangely enough, none of Bentham's friends followed his example, despite his, his best efforts to try and get them to do so. Uh, he was the, the only one. He'd require quite a forceful personality, I think. Yes, yes. I want to pick up on something you said there, because I think it's a, it's a profound question in terms of him being able, saying to be, people should be able to make that decision. And I think that that, is, that was kind of an underlying theme of the exhibition altogether, is who has agency to be able to make particular decisions, who gets to say what happens to them, both in life and in death. And I think, to, to me, that speaks to the history of eugenics. I guess you're talking about consent, is that right? Informed consent. Because I think, going from what Alice said, that's something we really wanted to address with this exhibition, in that these two figures, who are really important to UCL's history, both gave informed consent. So as Mark said, we knew, you know, like in terms of the ethics of Bentham, we knew we were safe ethically with Bentham. We thought we were with Petrie, if that is indeed his head. But then that's the thing we need to find out. Or you need to find out, I should say. <laughs> so I think, and because of the, you know, the work that was being done within UCL culture at the time for this pathology museum and the human tissue acts, but also the work that Alice was doing at the Petrie Museum in terms of the human remains, the body parts that were there. I mean, there's body bits all over UCL, actually. We were trying to pull this together and think about, you know, these two men gave their informed consent, but lots, most people didn't. That's the thing. I think sometimes there's a tendency to almost like brush it under the carpet and not address it, if that makes sense. We kind of didn't want to do that. We wanted to say, and these are the ways you can give informed consent and this is how you find out, but this is why informed consent is useful. Or not just useful, it's why informed consent is important. At the time, uh, there was also a parallel project to better rehouse the various parts of humans that were you know, sort of um, scattered across the museum to bring them into one place to, to enact the respect. So when you start working with various ethical guidelines around how you work with human remains and collections, so the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, after the Alder Hay scandal, there had been a lot of work done in the early 21st century of bringing together a working group and they produced uh, this guidance for human remains and collections and most museums model their ethical approach on that. And in keeping with that and International Council of Museums, they all use this word respect. Make sure that you treat human remains with respect in display, in how you give access to it and all the rest. But there's actually very little guidance on what respect means in practice. The exhibition provided another this opportunity to open up this dialogue and to negotiate and really, really problematise, but also try and find some practical solutions to, to move forward because these collections are here and we wanted to find ways to do something meaningful and practical with them rather than just put them back in the cupboard and, you know, move on because that's, that's, that's not going to solve anything. I remember talking, we were talking to Tim about this, about this idea of kind of coming back to the utility of the body with completely different technology that was around, you know, almost 200 years ago. And it actually is completely different technology that was around, as Mark says, 20 years ago. It's like always changing. So this idea of informed consent and this idea of 
you know, somebody who gives their consent almost 200 years ago, we took as still consenting to something that's only a couple of years old or a few years old when they're doing it. So it's that kind of, uh, people's attitudes to human remains change and bodies change and how we talk about them. And most people in this country now don't have so much of a problem with, with dissection and that kind of, but they have informed consent around that. Whereas of course, when Bentham died, and when the Human Anatomy Act was passed, most people of the Christian were Christian in Britain and believed in the full body for resurrection and salvation. And, and the thing is, dissection was a punishment before 1832. It was an added punishment if you were a murderer. After 1832, historians have argued it was an added punishment if you were poor. And I think, you know, that's um, an absence that I don't think we really address so much in the exhibition, actually, because I've been thinking about this more recently. And that's quite a hard one to address. And I think that was still what was going on with Alder Hay. That's partly why people are so shocked and disgusted by it. Because I think there's still that kind of feeling that people were being punished, if you know what I mean, almost being punished because their children had died, or being punished because they, they didn't quite know what happened to those bodies. And there was echoes of that kind of dissection and that anatomy act still going on because in the end, this is institutional care. And there's a thing about institutions and that's why the idea of consent and respect and informed consent is so important. I do have one question for all of you. The question is, how do you think collaborating on this project has influenced your work? Do you think that some of the, it's difficult to prove in the aftermath, but do you think that some of the things that you've done since might not have happened if it hadn't been for thinking about these ideas and working in this frame. What did you enjoy about working with each other? So I get, I get bored by people in my own subject, not being particularly rude about them in particular as people. They're, they're, they're great people. But I mean, this is why I love interdisciplinary research. I just like working with people who have expertise in areas that, that I'm clueless about. It's, it's so much more fun than talking to people that know the same stuff that I know. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's the classic echo chamber, particularly when you work in a, in, a, in a sector and, you know, you can sort of echo the same sort of mantras. And so for me, I think getting into discussion with, you know, the, those scientific discourses as well. And I've since I've extended these conversations around dealing with human remains, ancient Egyptian human remain collections with medics, for example, and equally, it has absolutely changed the way I thought about approaching these from a museum and really getting very different perspectives. So I feel much more confident to be able to have those dialogues with people outside the disciplines. No, I'd have very much the same from our point of view. I mean, the Bentham Project's always been, uh, just by the, the nature of what Bentham wrote about. We've always been quite outward looking because we need expertise from outside a bunch of historians and, and so forth. Yeah, and, and and it led to those terrific public engagement events like the wake for Jeremy Bentham, which widened knowledge of what exactly we were doing to a, an audience that we wouldn't have otherwise reached and probably never would. Well, I left GCL. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, honestly, um, I actually miss science. And I'm, it's made me think quite differently, actually, about some of these issues. I think I would have approached things quite differently now because of having some of the social science perspectives on things like grief, but also things like consent and socioeconomics of class, definitely. I think, I, I think really that was beyond me at that point. But I miss that kind of, there's not so many disciplines talking to each other, if you see what I mean. And that's the one, that's the big thing I miss about UCL, is that, you know, you can have 
genetics, statistics and archaeology. But I've been thinking about this quite recently because I think I've been just working on a project called Fading Rainbows about grief and loss and the um, COVID-19 pandemic with a group of um, school children. And this, pro- this project came back to me when I was working on that, partly because of the, the case that I mainly worked on and I remember. I think for me, what this project's done is like you say, put all those disciplines together in a different way and make, make you think differently about how you can put people together in different ways. And it's just it just makes you realise how complex these things are. That one person giving consent for their body to be on display or to be dissected, and you put it in the cultural influence of their time, and then you look at it 190 years later and what more you can do with that. Again, it's just, it's just, it's all so complex and there's so many different things at, at play, you know, that, that, that's why we need all these different perspectives, I think. And that is very much why I wanted to talk to all of you, because it is it just demonstrates my genuine belief in just how inspirational this project is. So I hope the people listening can take some inspiration from all these amazing cross-disciplinary conversations and collaborations and research. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining me. Mark Thomas, Tim Causa, Alice Stevenson, Debbie Chalice, it's been an absolute treat to talk to you. You've been listening to What Does Eugenics Mean to Us, a podcast from the Sarah Parker Raymond Centre at UCL. Your host was me, Subhadra Das, and the music was by the Blue Dot Sessions. The producer was Karis Bradley. <laughs>